All the time, God is good, right? Absolutely. I don't have a particular name for this sermon, but there's going to be a lot of reading and a large swathage of uh, scripture that we're going to go through. We're going to kind of address, well, not kind of, we're actually going to address original sin, and then we're going to hop over into the New Testament to Romans and find out where we are before the face of God or Quorum Deo, and then the good news of the gospel. The original sin is not good news, but uh, it is news nonetheless. Uh, I had a call from Pastor Clark. There was a small emergency down where they were. They ran out of suntan oil, so they had to go over to, go over to CVS, make sure everything was covered. Then I went to my financial advisor today, and he said, keep on working. You only got to 98, then you can retire. So that's good, good, good news on that one, too. So everything's coming together. So I want to start out by reading a particular song that was introduced to me by our speaker this weekend, Bill Sasser and his wife, Lynn. Some of you may have heard him sing it, but I want to reference it into original sin. And then, as I said before, we're going to read some scripture and then we'll go ahead and we'll find ourselves in the book of Romans. And then we'll try and land our plane as gently as we can with one more hymn that um, uh, is, I think, one of the best contemporary hymns uh, going today. And I would like to see our praise team, if at all possible, to actually include it in our repertoire of hymns that we do sing. So the name of this song, the name of this hymn is called Deeper Than the Stain Has Gone. Dark the stain that soiled man's nature, long the distance that he fell, far removed from hope in heaven, into deep despair in hell. But there was a fountain opened, and the blood of God's own Son purifies the soul and reaches deeper than the stain has gone. Praise the Lord for full salvation, for God still reigns upon his throne. And I know the blood still reaches deeper than the stain has gone. Conscious of deep pollution, sinners wander in the night. Though they hear the shepherd calling, they still fear to face the light. This the blessed consolation that can melt the heart of stone. The sweet balm of Gilead reaches deeper than the stain has gone. All unworthy we who've wandered and our eyes are wet with tears as we think of love that sought us through the weary wasted years. Yet we walk the holy highway, walking by God's grace alone, knowing Calvary's fountain reaches deeper than the stain has gone. When the holy choirs were standing in the presence of the king, and our souls are lost in wonder while the white robe choirs sing, then we'll praise the name of Jesus with the millions around the throne, praise him for the power that reaches deeper than the stain has gone. Let's pray. Lord, let your name be glorified and magnified by our time together. Let's help us to understand that Satan always tempts us to find our assurance from within, but it does not exist there. Inside, we only find sin. We have a God, however, who has replaced our sin with his own righteousness. And rest assured and be at peace. Before God, the righteousness of Christ is all we have. And before God, the righteousness of Christ is all we need. Be with us tonight. Open up our minds. Open up our hearts to the Spirit of God. We ask these things and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. This is from a commentary on original sin and total depravity. Scripture diagnoses sin as a universal deformity of human nature found at every point in every person. 
Both Testaments describe sin as rebellion against God's rule, missing the mark God set for us to aim at, transgressing God's law, offending God's purity by defiling oneself, and incurring guilt before God the judge. The moral deformity is dynamic. Sin is an energy of irrational, negative, and rebellious reaction to God. It is a spirit of fighting God in order to play God. The root of sin is pride and enmity against God. The spirit seen in Adam's first transgression and sinful acts always have behind them thoughts and desires that one way or another express the willful opposition of a fallen heart to God's claims on our life. Sin may be defined as breaking the law of God or failing to conform to it in any aspect, whether word, thought, or deed. Original sin means sin derived from our real origin. It is not a biblical phrase. It comes from the great reformer Augustine. But it does bring into focus the reality of sin in our spiritual system. Original sin does not mean that sin belongs to human nature as such. God made man upright. Nor does it mean that the processes of reproduction and birth are sinful. The uncleanliness associated with sexuality in the law was typical and ceremonial, not moral. Rather, original sin means that sinfulness marks everyone from birth in the form of a heart inclined towards sin. Prior to any actual sins, this inner sinfulness is the root and source of all actual sinning. It is transmitted to us from Adam, our first representative before God. The doctrine of original sin makes the point that we are not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we are sinners, born with a nature enslaved and proclivity to sin. The phrase total depravity is commonly used to make explicit the implications of original sin. It signifies a corruption of our moral and spiritual nature that is total in principle, although not in degree. For no one is as bad as he or she might be. No part of us is untouched by sin. No action of ours is as good as it should be. Consequently, nothing we do is ever meritorious in God's eyes. We cannot earn God's favor no matter what we do. Unless God's grace saves us, we remain lost. Total depravity includes total inability, that is, being without power to believe in God or His Word. Paul calls this universal unresponsiveness a form of death. The fallen heart is dead. As the Westminster Confession explains, quote, Man by his fall into a state of sin hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good, and dead in sin is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. End quote. To this darkness, the word of God alone brings light. We jump over to Genesis 6. I'm sure all of you are familiar with who Noah is. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry they had made man on earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, quote, I will destroy man who I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Keep that in your front pocket, because that is going to be the root of all salvific action. But God found favor, some scriptures say. But when we look at the word favor, it's translated into our common vernacular today as grace. So when we are saved by grace, we are saying that we are saved by God's favor. God is the one who plucks us 
off the dunghill of life. We do not actively seek out God. For the scripture is very explicit in saying that no one seeketh after God. And we can't because of original sin. We are dead to what God has to offer us unless we begin to find favor with God because of God. It's an upside-down economy. It's God running at us. We're running away. And so we have to keep those things in mind to understand that it's a complete God thing all the time. It's not an us thing. For some reason, we want to have some participation in it, and it is not. The less participation we have, the better. The more we find ourselves at the foot of the cross, the more we find ourselves honoring what God has done in our stead, in our substitute, in our room and place, the more we give all praise, all glory, all honor to God. If there is a thread, if there's a morsel, if there is an atom that we take, we are taking it away from a thrice holy God. And he tells us in the scripture that he shares his glory with no one. And so we always have to go and find out the idea that we are where we are because of the grace of God. We jump over to Romans 5, 5, 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the glory of the God. And not only that, but we also glory in our tribulations. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Someone asked one time, what's your greatest drug? And I said, well, I'm addicted to hope. There's a never-ending supply of it. It's around everywhere. Not, not, not a bad addiction on that one. Now, hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time... Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love towards us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 5.12 Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all have sinned. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came for many offenses resulted in justification. For those God foreknew, he also did justify. For if by one man's offense, death reigned through the one, much more than those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will remain in life. Therefore, as though one man's offense, judgment came to all men resulting in condemnation, even through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Moreover, the law entered, the offense might abound, wherein sin abounded, grace much more abounded. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. Over to Romans six twelve. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. 
and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but you are under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? You are the ones slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves to righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weaknesses of your flesh. For, you, for just as you presented your members as slaves to uncleanliness and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life and our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Just sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came in, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy, just and good. Romans 15. For what am I doing? I don't understand. For what I will to do, I do not practice. But what I hate to do, that I do. If then I do what I will not do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will do, I do not do. But the evil I will do not do, that I practice regularly. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into the captivity to the law of sin, which is my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of flesh. 
but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Interesting how many times he goes over things that are of our mind. In our Sunday school, we're always talking about be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Think of this undomesticated beast we have called our mind and, and, and the imagination that has the ability to run in directions that none of us should ever be thinking about. Yet, that's the mind that we have because of original sin. It goes to places that we ought not to be. And what it ought not to be is the fact that it is never glorifying to God when we're running and letting that undomesticated beast run wild and run free. And so we have to see and understand that as the Old Testament tells us that we were conceived in iniquity and we came forth from our mother's womb speaking lies. So right from the get-go, as Pastor Clark often says, he says, you know, you're little angels. And he always makes fun of that saying there are no little angels, they're just little rattlesnakes. Well, the fact of the matter is, I never taught my kid how to lie. He knows how to lie on his own. I never taught my kid how to say no, but he says no on his own. He's found disrespect because he's a disrespectful little punk. He's full of sin. That's what he does. Sinners sin because they're, they're, they're full of sin, as do we. And so what we have to keep understanding is we have the proclivity to sin already there due to our representative father, Adam. He is our spiritual father. So the bad news is this. Our genetic spiritual pool is tainted. We don't have good spiritual genetics at all. As a matter of fact, we have lousy spiritual genetics. I'm five foot six and a half. I'm not going to dunk a basketball. I'm okay with that. My genetics tell me I'm not going to dunk a basketball. My spiritual genetics tell me I will run from God every chance I get. Even as a saved person who professes Christ, I run from God every chance I get. If I don't do it physically, I do it mentally all the time. Prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. Just close your eyes and let your mind go to, to a place, and you'll go to that place lickety-split. And I'll guarantee you, it's not going to be a God-glorifying place. It's going to be a problem place, things that are going to be unglorifying to God. See, the struggle that we have is between the willingness of our flesh and the doing it of our flesh. The Spirit is willing, and the Spirit is willing because Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are now inhabiting our body. We're not our own anymore. We're bond slaves to Christ. We're a slave to righteousness in our spirit. But in our flesh, oh, as Pastor Clark likes to say, it's a wild ass's coat. We'll run in the wrong direction every single time. So if you think that your flesh is a little bit stronger, I have a couple of challenges for you. If your vanity, if your vanity is your vitamin, you're going to die malnourished. If your popularity and good looks is your currency, you're going to die bankrupt. If your intellect is your hydration, you'll eventually die of thirst. If your good works, intentions, and deeds is your brilliance, you're going to perish insane. And if you're counting on the government or culture, you'll die a prisoner, not anywhere near liberation. And so look how much we count on those simple things right there. How crazy are we? The first thing we do when we judge a person is on how they look. Right? Unbelievable. 
I mean, think about that. Unbelievable. That's how shallow we are, even after being saved, even after being converted. You know, we used to, in chiropractic, we used to say, imagine how you would be much more willing to take care of your spine if you could wear it on your forehead. So if your spine's all crooked and out of alignment, you'd be much more concerned about it. They showed a picture for a dental office, and it showed a guy smiling like this, and had a missing front tooth right here. And at the bottom it said, I bet you didn't even see his missing eyebrow. And you look back at the picture, he has no eyebrows. <laughs> what do we see? We see how somebody looks first. Absolutely. Absolutely. But if your heart and mind have been quickened by the Holy Spirit, well, my friend, your salvation is secure. And that's the difference. You have found the answer to Paul's question. Who can deliver me from this body of death? This body of death. Why does he use the term body of death? Because in that time, if you committed a crime and you committed a crime such as murder and you were found guilty, you carried that body on your back until it rotted off. Now, you start thinking about that. Start thinking about carrying a dead dog with you. Okay, now multiply it, and you know, you got a dead cat, and pretty soon you got a, you know, and then you got a human body on your back, rotting away with flesh. Who can deliver me from that body of death? Have you ever laid awake at night and thought to yourself, how sinful I really am, and you, you had an unquenchable desire of absolute and thorough disappointment? You're like, unbelievable how bad it is. If you haven't, may I challenge you to do some introspection and think, you know what? I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. See, the conflict is always going to be real, whether we are saved or unsaved. So I have a question, and you can give me the one-word answer as you see it coming at you. What makes a person relapse? What per makes a person return to their vomit like a dog? What makes a man visit websites he shouldn't go to? What makes a man take what isn't his? What makes a man fashion earthly items into little gods? What makes a man think that he's better than the neighbor? What makes a man touch a child when he shouldn't? What makes a man cheat on his taxes? What makes a man do all these things even after he's saved and has a profession of faith? See, the indwelling sin from our genetic gene pool, Adam, is still there in the flesh. Like that wild ass's coat, it's not going away. It's going to buck, it's going to bronco, it's going to do everything to throw you off as a spiritual being. But it's hard because we have this flesh, and in my flesh dwells no good thing. And I understand that. I understand that in total. Someone asked me one time, what's the worst thing you ever did? And I said, what, you think I've reached my potential? Maybe i got more bad things to do. I don't know. I hope not. But do you understand the point of it? See, we're kind of like a moth that's drawn to the light. The moth doesn't take directions and look at the GPS and say, you know, I think I'll avoid the light. Why does the moth run to the light? Because his genetics tell them, run to the light. That's what we're like when we, run to the, when we run to our sinful behavior and our sinful inclinations. We're like the moth who's doing exactly what the moth has the genetics to do. Our genetic gene pool, spiritual gene pool, tells us to run to the light. And you've seen all the little commercials, don't run to the light. And the little moth's running, it's like, don't run, oh, crap, you ran to the light. Yeah, you ran to the light. See, we run away from the light to run to the light. And that's a problem. The believer must understand that the Christian life is a struggle. A state of sinless perfection will not be obtained by salvation, by faith, or gradual obedience in this life. The total eradication of the sinful nature, nature from the believer's earthly experience is never taught in Scripture. 
While the scripture calls the believer to be more like Christ, each day he can become more obedient. He will never reach the point where he will completely obey until he is with Christ either in death or at the rapture. There still remains in the unbeliever, I'm sorry, there still remains in the believer unsubdued tendencies towards sin, which are in constant conflict with the new man. Constant conflict with the new man. The spirit is willing, and then my flesh puts on a set of boxing gloves or MMA gloves and wants to do battle constantly. And there's no corner man, there's no bells going off, there's no scantily clad girls holding up round three. It is constant struggle all the time. I used to tell people all the time, I used to get in the best arguments with my wife on the way home from church after the best sermons. Could never understand why until you understand that, you know what? We're constantly, God is break, or the devil is constantly attacking us. He does not want us close. He does not want us righteous. He wants us to pursue what glorifies him, not what glorifies God. Sinful behavior is what the devil's all about. If you don't think it's true, go read the paper. If it doesn't bleed, it doesn't lead. Keep this in mind, though. Although we are constantly referred to what Christ accomplished at the cross for us at Calvary in his death, it's because he lived a sinless life of obedience to his Father. That makes him the perfect spotless lamb acceptable for sacrifice. Tavidian writes, the urge to pick one aspect of Christ's life, namely his death, is more important than the others is understandable. We certainly see in the New Testament how everything seems to turn on the cross. We could accurately say that the cross is the crossroads of history, the moment at which our sin was laid on Christ's shoulders and his righteousness was transformed to us. It is easy to see why Christ's death might overshadow anything else about him. But to talk about cross-centeredness as if the death of Christ, his passive obedience, is more important than the life of Christ, his active obedience, is to miss other incredibly important things about Jesus. The truth is our redemption depends not only on Christ's substitutionary death, but his substitutionary life as well. J. Gresham Macon's last recorded words as sent by a telegram to fellow theologian and friend John Murray were, quote, I'm so thankful for the act of obedience of Christ. No hope without it. End quote. He understood that apart from Christ's law-fulfilling life, there is no righteousness to impute. We are, therefore, left dressed down in our own filthy rags. Christ's life, in other words, is just as central to our rescue as his death. As I've said before, we are not saved apart from the law. Rather, we are saved in Christ who perfectly kept the law on our behalf. So Christ's death is not the center of the gospel any more than Christ's life is the center of the gospel. One without the other fails to bring about redemption. It's more theologically accurate to say that Christ himself is the center of the gospel. He just didn't die for you. He also lived for you. So when we consider uh, Romans 7.20, Paul, it seems that would be, he'd be excusing himself from his sinful actions of impotency. And it's not, it is important to understand, however, that Paul never avoids personal responsibility for his sin. He knows he's fully culpable and responsible for his actions. Jonathan Edwards, a great American theologian, wrote a book called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And what he does in the book is he gives an incredibly detailed and graphic analogy of being held by a spider web over an open pit that the flames are licking up at the spider. And that this is God holding us by a thin web over that pit of hell as those flames lash and lick up towards us because we are sinners in the hands of an angry God. 
And there becomes only one appeasement to that anger, and that is the substitutionary blood at Calvary. Also the substitutionary life of obedience that he led on our behalf. So I'm going to ask you a few diagnostic questions, and then we'll go ahead and see if we can land this plane. When you look at yourself in the mirror, or you're being introspective, you're taking some type of inventory, what do you see? Do you see hopeless and helpless? Do you see an addict? You see a rehabilitated person or you see a rescue? You see a rebel or you see a zealot? Do you see yourself as a denier of biblical accuracy? Or do you see yourself as that sneaky little shit who figured it all out who's going to get away with it? Because your mom says you're a good boy and your grandma says she's a good girl and your boyfriends and girlfriends think you're good, but you know your heart and you know that it's desperately wicked, but yet you think you're going to have it all figured out. You're going to wait for that deathbed confession when you're that sneaky little shit, right? Not going to get away with it. So my question is, is there a body of death that you see? Or is there a new creation created in Christ Jesus unto good works? Because that's where our good works always come from, is what Christ has done for us and where we are driven constantly to find ourselves. Do we mess up? All the time. All the time. Two questions I want you to ask yourself. Who do you say Jesus is? Well, some say he's John the Baptist, some say he's Abe Lincoln, some say he's Mark Zuckerberg. Well, who do you say that he is? Peter answers, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answers him and says this, flesh and blood have not revealed that to you, but my Father in heaven. So immediately he takes any type of attribute spiritually and awakening that Peter had and immediately dismisses it and says this to him. You didn't figure that out, Sherry. God figured that out for you, and he put that on your heart. And that heart is about, what, 12 inches away from your brain? And it, it, there's a nice little connection between the two. And so it is God who does the work. So my question to you is this. Who do you say Jesus is? Just some historical guy like Abe Lincoln? Or is he thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God? who lived and died for you in perfect obedience in life and perfect obedience in death on your behalf. And then this is the next question I have for you. Who can deliver you from that body of death? There's only one. It's not going to be your good works. It won't be your intentions. It won't be your deeds. It won't be helping a little old lady across the street, and it won't be giving money to the Red Cross. It is only one who can deliver you from that body of death. And that is Jesus Christ and him crucified. So I'm going to encourage you to quit carrying around your sins and transgressions like an anchor in your backpack. you got to come to Christ and soar with the eagles into eternity knowing that your sins have been washed clean. Eternity is a long time to gamble with. With Christ and found in Christ, eternal security. Without Christ, the devil doesn't offer you spiritual Narcan. You're dead. There is no reviving. That must be done on terra firma, this earth. After death, oh, you'll confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But they'll all confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's not a pitch for universal salvation. That's a pitch for every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what it means. And you bow before lords. That's why every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ 
is Lord. Because at the end of the day, you're not shocked by your sin. Oh, you may get a little rustle and you get a little, maybe get a little bristle in your mind or your spirit, but you're not shocked by your sin at all. That's why when the pastor sits up here and he says, people come up to him all the time, oh, you're not going to believe what I did. You're not shocked by it. Nobody's shocked by it. You can't read the papers and be shocked by anybody's sin. There go I, but by the grace of God. Here's, here's my admonition. Never ever, if you're saved and you're in Christ right now, never stop being amazed by his amazing grace. Because it is his amazing grace that takes us all the way to heaven. It is grace that saves. It is grace that keeps. It is grace that satisfies. It is grace that we will be singing eternally in thankfulness to God above as we sing with the cherubims and seraphims in heaven. Don't ever, ever sour on God's amazing grace. Yeah, he doesn't say he's being very gracious to me right now. What does he owe you? Right? I don't understand. You mean he should pluck you out of everybody and say, I'm going to be super nice to this kid? For what? If he brings glory and honor to his name by doing it? Fantastic. But we just read in Romans where he says, I glory in my tribulations because my tribulations cause character and character Hope and hope perseverance. Those are things that there are no sins against. Just like there's no sins against being nice and being gracious and being merciful and being loving. How about we put those shoes on and walk in those for a little while as opposed to the sinfulness that we find ourselves clotting around in, in, in mud. Remember, there, C.S. Lewis said, there's too many times we're so satisfied with playing mud pies in our backyard than by enjoying a holiday at the sea. And how many of us find that it's okay in those mud pies and deny ourselves the joy of going to a vacation by the sea. This is a song called Before the Throne of God Above. And it's fantastic. So we took off with how deep our stain is. We learned exactly what original sin is doing to us now. We looked at a few metrics and diagnostics that we can't answer positively to because all of us are guilty before that, those answers. So now we're going to land the plane on a field of, look what we have in God above. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands... No tongue can bid me thence depart. Oh, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. <clears throat> Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on God on high. With Christ my Savior and my God, with Christ my Savior and my God, one with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high. With Christ my Savior and my God.